you want to give love to the city, that's a fact. But you're going to need help if you want to make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast. I'm Elizabeth Bonkink. And I'm Andrew Paul. This podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation, and we're a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Edmonton is full of generous donors who have created endowment funds at ECF. These funds generate money to support charities in Edmonton and beyond. On this podcast, we share stories from the spaces where endowments and community intersect, because it's good to be well endowed. On this episode, we continue our special series, It Takes a Community. That's right. This is the fourth installment of the series created by Hunter and Jacqueline Cardinal. I'm really excited for this one, so let's jump right in. Here's Hunter speaking with Aaron Paquette, City Councillor for Ward 4. Tanse, hello. Welcome to It Takes a Community, a well-endowed podcast series about inspirational leaders and the communities of people, places, and ideas that have supported them along the way. I'm your host, Hunter Cardinal, and from a young age, I was taught that my people, the Nehiao, or Cree people, have always understood ourselves as bound together in a vast web of interconnectedness. As my career as an actor and storyteller developed, I began to cross paths with more and more incredibly accomplished people. And when asked, almost every single person time and again echoed the voices of my elders in crediting their successes to their networks of support. This podcast is my own quest to explore what it means to succeed and support each other in succeeding in an inherently interconnected world and learn how it truly does take a community. Our guest this episode is Aaron Paquette, the Nehiao Métis artist and politician who many recognize as the city councillor for Ward 4 in Edmonton. I've been lucky enough to have known Aaron since I was in elementary school and had big ambitions to be a visual artist. At the time, if you were an Indigenous kid in the public school system in Edmonton with an interest in art, you were invited to participate in painting workshops hosted by Aaron. I remember those days being full of encouragement to follow my passion and dedicate myself to learning the craft of it. When my passion for visual art later changed into a passion for the performing arts, I took those same teachings along with me and watched with continued inspiration as Aaron entered the political arena. The conversation you're about to listen to was such a gift for me to record, not just because of that history that we have, but also because I was able to listen to Aaron share stories about how in his early days, his mother taught him about the importance of building and serving the community through organizing community feasts, about how he found his calling in painting, his love of reading, and how his definition of community has changed over time. I left this conversation with the belief that courage and dependability can only truly come from practicing vulnerability and self-awareness. Hope you enjoy. I am really excited to have you here. Um, Thank you so much for making the time. It's my absolute pleasure. This is us again. We actually recorded a podcast, a really early podcast, like almost, what was it, like two two, three years ago. It was before. It was It was almost. It was four years ago. Yeah, it was when you were running. Yeah, or, federally. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's 2015. Intense. Wow, good times. Good we're times. We're old. And we also go way back, too, to we did our first, um, I don't know, why did I say we? You taught me in an arts program right. way back. So you saw Hunter 
like when he was in junior high, just riddled with, with acne. Yeah, riddled with <laughs> hormones. Um, didn't understand comedic timing. I still don't. Um, so, uh, but yeah, like I remember, I remember seeing you for the first time, and I remember you mentioned just something that I hadn't heard before. Just this idea of you not looking what other people would perceive as indigenous. And there's a moment where that clicked and you named something that I hadn't seen before. And it was really exciting too, because I was also learning how to do the arts and like get into that. And I was just curious, like were those your indigenous identity and also your arts, how intertwined were they? Was that always the case? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it was always the case. Um, I'll tell you a quick story about um, my father uh, was, uh, is probably still a painter, but he and my mother split up. But one of the things that was left behind was a painting that he had made. And it was of these hunters, you know, sneaking up on some deer. And the reason I love that painting so much is because I remember as a, as a kid just looking at the painting and getting closer and closer to it. And the closer I got, the more I saw the brushstrokes. And the more I saw the brushstrokes, the more the image disappeared until I got close enough where it was all just different pieces of dark and light, right? And I, it had really stuck with me. And, and years later, I kind of like had this moment where I realized like the reason I loved it is because that's what life is. Hmm. When you're right there, it's just good times, bad times, great decisions, poor decisions, so on and so forth, and, and just the happenstance that happens. And as you back up, as you get more perspective, you start to see the image unfolding until you actually have something and say, that's my life, right? And so my father is, is Cree and Métis. And as, as sad as this is to say, in many ways, for a lot of people, the indigenous experience is having one parent gone. And so for me, it was my father. And so my whole life uh, as a young person was trying to a, reconcile the fact that he was gone from my life, and so there must have been something wrong with me for that to happen. And then searching for my father and searching for what, what his absence and his choices meant about what I could choose to do. And for a long time, I felt trapped in that, mm. that I was going to be just like that. I was terrified of having a family because I would just disappear. And I... Uh, carried some shame about being unworthy and unloved. And that sort of became sort of a theme in my life as a young man until I didn't even have any value for myself. So pretty sad, I guess. No, that, but, I mean, that, 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 yeah. But that's the internal, the external was a lot of smiles. Yeah. So that, that touches on something that I found that I'm finding now is just you, for me at least, what I'm noticing is going through junior high, going through high school, I, actually about the time that you saw me, mm -hmm. I wasn't even conscious. Riddled with that. Uh, riddled. You wouldn't know. Um, I, 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 you wouldn't be able to tell that, that I was actually going through this stuff and I wasn't even able to tell that there was kind of some stuff similar to what you were talking about. 
Um, what was it like for you in the moment? Did you know what was going on? And No, it was yeah. a mess. In fact, I didn't even really understand this until I was in my mid-30s. Oh my, yeah. It took a long time because it's difficult. Um, and this is, you know, before there was like mass social media to understand that other people are having the same experiences. And so for all the negatives of social media and um, and these sort of, uh, you know, self-enforcing self, uh, groups, the benefit is that I actually got to see that other people felt the same way. This was their journey and that they're there was actually healing possible. You know, it's it's fascinating to me because we know now that trauma gets encoded into DNA. So you pass it on from generation to generation. When you think of the indigenous experience in Canada, that is a lot of trauma. The survivors who obviously because of the fact they survived are the strongest of the strong. And so that's who we are. We are the, their descendants. But we also got all of that trauma, um, and not only just that little bit uh, from one generation, but generation after generation. And so there's huge internal physical encoded battles that uh, Indigenous people face. Now, the good thing is, is if we can encode trauma, that means we can also encode healing. And this is the generation that, that I think is really, really facing that and starting down that path. So one thing that I'm really interested in is you're going through, <laughs> like you said, and I, I really identify it, the mess. Um, who were your greatest or what were your greatest teachers at that time? Oh, boy. You know, like for me, like I, what I'm excited about with this conversation and the conversations that we have been having is we're getting to redefine what community is mm -hmm. what does it look like it doesn't necessarily have to be someone who is related to you it doesn't have to be a person per se it could be reflection it could be walking in the river valley philosophy art what was that for you that kind of provided a little bit of direction it doesn't have to be huge but something that you reached for and turned to right i guess it depends on what age we're talking okay but um, at the time when I started to actually understand, like, oh, okay, so I behave this way because of X. And so if I want to change, I have to really acknowledge that, and it's not going to be easy. In the midst of that, and I'm not just pumping your tires, but that's when I met your father. <laughs> no way. <laughs> and your father uh, was really a great example to me, and local, and... Uh, and I just couldn't believe that there was this uh, indigenous person who was speaking to important issues and encouraging other people, especially young people, to stand up and sort of claim their identity and claim their space in society, and that it didn't have to be confrontational. It could be in a way that was, um, there was, you could disagree but you could do so in a way that actually led to better resolutions and better results. And um, he took time to, to talk with me and, and walk with me and really inspire me to get more involved um, than I was. And, and so here I am. Uh, that, was, that was one of the instigators as, a, as an adult for me to 
to be more involved in politics and in community building and realizing that I could actually have a voice. Hmm. Yeah. And now that is a drastic change, maybe, I would say, or just a different direction from your arts career. So, you know, it's, it's funny that you mention that because I, I give a lot of thought to that. And I don't see a difference at all. Okay, go on. Okay, so I'm going to tell you all my stories today. That's that's what I'm praying for. I all offered right. you and, tobacco. And you may have already <laughs> heard the story, and so I'll keep it short. But um, I, I actually gave up on art because I was a career was not unfolding, and uh, I had two small twin boys that I was responsible for. So I thought, you know, maybe I should, maybe I should do something different if this isn't going to fly. I put it all away, and um, one night I was inspired to bring out my work again, and uh, I had this blank canvas in front of me, and my mind started to wander, and I started thinking about my my sister, and this time she came home in tears because some men had tried to get her into their car, and she had to fight to be free. And of course, we know that this is not an unusual experience for indigenous women. Unfortunately, I mean, it's insane and tragic, but I was only, uh, I think, 12 years old at the time, and I was so frustrated, and I felt powerless, and I didn't know what to do with that anger and that fear. And so I'm sitting there years later, and I think of her story, and then I start thinking of the stories of of my aunties, my cookums, my my cousins, and then I think about my new little nieces, and I think, I want their story to be different. When they look at media, what are they seeing reflected back to them about who they are? And at that time, it was almost 100% negative and only talked about a subset of people that could that could actually be defined as anyone in poverty, right? When you're talking about... Um, criminality or, uh, you know, not being able to take care of your children or any of the news stories that you would see that had an indigenous person in it. So all of those thoughts were rolling around and I thought, I don't want my nieces to grow up with only one narrative. And so I need to add mine to that. So I started to paint. I painted the women in my family the way I saw them as strong, capable, connected. And I finished that painting, realized I didn't have just one more painting in me. I had many, so I started painting more and more. I painted all night, took those pieces into the Bear Claw Gallery here in town. And, uh, you know, for 10 years of my life, whenever I would take my work in anywhere, the response was, nice work, kid, shows promise, but no thanks. Well, I took it in, and they said, nice work, kid, shows mm-hmm. promise, but why don't you leave it here and see what the owner says? By the time I got home, I had a message, and it said, Let's do it. I had actually gotten acceptance of my work, and we had a show, and every piece found a home. And it started me on this journey of being able to realize, like, for a decade I had been trying to create a career for myself. And the one night, the one night that I let all of that go and decided to use all these, all these talents that I developed over a decade to just serving the people I loved, everything changed. And so 
I realized my life could be that. My life could be about service. And through the magic of, of, of being in a society, um, I would actually have the resources to live and to continue to, continue to serve. So I kept selling paintings, kept having shows, and it led to writing a book, which um, is a whole other story and stuff, and I'm sure you don't want to hear that one, but you do? How are we going to edit this? I mean, it's just nonstop talking. And <laughs> I mean, we'll, we'll figure something out. Okay. No one, yeah. <laughs> so it, it led to me writing a book. I'd always wanted to have this idea rolling around in my head, but I didn't think that I had the chops for it, frankly. And so my wife was pregnant and going to bed early every night, and so I didn't really have a lot to do. And I thought, well, I'll just write a chapter. Okay, wrote another chapter, wrote another chapter. Th- and then had her read it. She goes, great, where's, where's the rest? I was like, well, that, that's it. She goes, well, get writing. So I did, and every night I wrote a new chapter. And by the end of 45 days, I had a book and let my family read it. And then I stuck it into a drawer, Hunter, and left it there for a year. Because I thought, well, no one's going to want to read this thing. I was on Facebook, and uh, my friend Richard Wagamese, he passed away, um, but you know him, he wrote books like Indian Horse and Keeper and Me, and he, uh, he said, any of, my, any of my friends out there ever written something and never did anything with it? I was like, well, that's oddly specific, but yeah, that's me. And he said, okay, great. Send me a, a synopsis of the main character of the book itself, the first chapter, and I was like, no problem. I Googled synopsis. It means summary. But I didn't know that at the time. And uh, <laughs> sent it into him. And he said, great, this is a book submission. Send it to 40 publishers. You'll get rejected 40 times. And uh, if you're lucky, some of these editors will send you notes that will make you a better writer. I said, great. So I researched publishers, found, uh, found the, my top 10 that I'd want to go with. And so I sent it to the top one publisher to start out with. And I thought, okay. Once they respond back to me, that'll be my, my little goal on my map, and I'll come back after about a year of rejections to them with a better book. And it's going to be a great story. I can tell kids when I see them and I talk to them, hey, listen, kids, keep trying. I got rejected 40 times, but I kept going. The, unfortunately, all my plans went astray. They did email me back, and they said, where do we send the contract? So I was kind of depressed, but like, come on, I, I can live with it. Say no. Yeah. Please, I need this. <laughs> yeah. But so we, we published the book, and before it even came out, the first printing sold out. A few weeks later, the second printing sold out, and so on and so forth. It's now, uh, it was published in 2014. It's in its 10th printing, and it's, uh, it won the Bird Award for uh, First Nations Métis Inuit Literature which is astounding. Wow. It was a book that I put in a drawer because I thought no one would want to see it. So my challenge to anyone listening to this is, what is that thing that, that you have inside of you that, that you've hidden away? What is that, that gift that only you have, whether it's a smile, uh, a warm hug, uh, whether it's your song or your acting or your music or your writing, whatever it is, don't ever hide it away like I did. I thought no one would care, and it turns out that 
I was wrong. There are some people who need what you have, and it may not even be in your lifetime that it matters, but that good, that light that you put in the world is going to change someone's life at some point in the moment they need it. And it could change yours too. You have a very industrious side to you of you set yourself up and then you just go. That's what it sounds like. Right. Was that always the case? Did someone demonstrate that to you when you think about where you got that from? Oh, sure. Yeah, my mom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mentioned that my father left. She was alone with five kids. What was she going to do? Hmm. And so she knocked on doors in the neighborhood because we lived in, you know, my parents were students. We lived in a low-income neighborhood, right? So she started knocking on doors and saying, hey, none of us have a lot of money. Why don't we pool our resources? We can get things in bulk. Uh, this was before there was Costco's or Superstores. Cool. And uh, that way we can maximize our, our funds and, you know, save a little money, make it stretch a little further. And everyone agreed. So they started doing that. She actually contacted a wholesaler and they were like, yeah, sure. We, we'll help out this, this neighborhood. And then people, because it was immigrants too, they were saying, you know, we, we actually use different ingredients. Can we get those? And my mom's like, well, let's find out. But tell me, like, what, what is this food you're making? You should, you should teach it to us so that there was a community kitchen. So every Thursday night, someone would share a new recipe from where they were in the world. And the neighborhood would be filled with this, these delicious scents. And our job as kids was to go door to door and, and bring out families and, and uh, seniors, people with disabilities who normally wouldn't come outside and come and eat. And, and you know, there was, I remember these breads, everyone would be eating these fresh breads. And my mom took it a step further. She said, since we're meeting anyway, why don't we bring in professionals who can, you know, give us little one-hour sort of uh, workshops. So nutritionists, lawyers, uh, doctors, you know, accountants. So a little bit of, like, uplift for the, for the whole community. And then they took it one step further. Because my mom hadn't finished school, she said, well, I can't with five kids. Um, why don't we set up a community daycare? And they did that so that families could either uh, have someone go to school or get another job. And the entire community was uplifted together. And so for me, I thought that was normal. Wow. Right? How old were you at the time? At the time, I was four years old. Oh, my God. Yeah. And uh, it, it went on for years, right? So I thought it was totally normal for that to be a neighborhood reality. So when I got out into the world, it was kind of depressing. <laughs> but, uh, it was not, yeah. But I realized what was possible, and all it took was a bit of energy and a bit of uh, community building, right? So now let's bring it back. You asked if uh, politics was different from art. No. It's the same place it's coming from if it's coming from a good place. And so my art career started because I decided to serve my community. I wrote a book because I wanted to serve youth who didn't see themselves reflected in popular literature in a way that wasn't about, you know, growing up on the res. That was more like, hey, here's an adventure. By the way, all the most of the characters happen to be indigenous. Um, and then going into politics was the same thing. I knew that my community needed a voice that cared about the actual building of community and what that meant and about uh, equity and about 
the fact that we've got these resources that we call taxes. We've got these resources we call people. We've got these resources we call dreams. How do we put those all together to create a better community? And that is all the same thing. It's all about creating something better every day. And you talked about having sort of an industrious mm-hmm. uh, streak. All that means is if, you, if you've ever, anyone who's grown up in poverty understands that you have to live day by day. If you think about the whole thing, you can get crushed with depression. You can get crushed with the weight of what you're facing. But if you can take it step by step, minute by minute, even if you have to, then you know you can keep building towards something. And so, you know, and I've got a problem with this, though. There are people who say, you know, I grew up poor and it made me stronger. Okay, sure. But there's a difference between challenges and and trauma, being traumatized, right? And sometimes poverty can be traumatizing. And that doesn't make you stronger. So when you see people who've grown up in abject poverty with no supports, and they're a little messed up or they just cannot cope anymore, that is because of trauma. They don't need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. They don't need to just uh, you know, work harder. That's not what it's about. That is, that is where... Um, the way we've done community and society has hurt someone very, very bad. Then you've also got those who weren't traumatized through poverty. And then you can have those stories where like, oh, you know, I grew up poor and then I was a success. Well, great. I'm, I'm glad that happened for you, genuinely. But you can't use that story to then justify treating someone else poorly because they just, they didn't happen to have the exact same story as you. So I, I, I think it's important to, to make that distinction because, yes, I learned to work hard because we're poor, but that doesn't mean that being poor teaches you how to work hard. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, totally. And, you know, I've, I've talked with my sister as well, and, you know, one of the things that we – that really hurts us is if there is a perception of – people looking at what is perceived as success and then they look at us and they, first of all that would be a very quick glance but you know then they're just like well why can't other people do that you know and then all of a sudden we're hypocrites for taking part in a system and other people should just do the same thing and it's like are you mm-hmm. trying to tell me that you're a sellout <laughs> <laughs> i'm trying to tell you i've been tr- i've been texting you for months um but it's interesting like and and for us it's just like no like there, there's a lot of the things that we have were fortunate because of chance. You know, that's huge. Mm-hmm. That played and privilege as well, especially, you know, you know, the privilege that I have, the privilege that my sister has, the privilege that um, my dad has. There's a lot of things that other people didn't get as well. Mm-hmm. And that's like super important to have as a part of the conversation. And it can be so easy to, you know, make things so simple and you know, one of the things that I'm really interested about, and it's partly because I'm learning this right now, is that journey of going f- after things for yourself and what that means mm. about you. 
and the transition into thinking about the community because that's been something that's been really difficult and for a long time I think I've been really buying into this idea that I should be like I I have these actions that are for what they mean about me and this representation of who I am that I put up to people Um, and I and I and I really have bought into it for a long time but now I'm starting to be like whoa that's actually not in alignment with my values right now and I don't want to seem I don't want to seem like a good person or like a nice person but I actually want to be a kind person but because I've spent so long putting my resources into that seeming, I'm starting from like essentially zero when it actually comes to being a, a good, kind person in the moment all the time and practicing that discipline. Does that make sense? A little bit. I, I, I disagree with you on one point. Uh, you are actually genuinely a good person. Okay, thanks. I think Thank you. It comes through pretty clearly. Um, but you're also just kind of a jerk. Yeah, I know. No, yeah, you're not. <laughs> I uh, put salt in your coffee, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but this is, you know, you know what I'm saying. I do. Okay, I, good. And I agree. Okay, good. I'm really interested in that solo journey that you went on in that switch so, and like. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's interesting because there's a reticence to speak to these things because it's it's such a it's such experience specific that. It can very easily be misunderstood. Exactly. So, listeners, um, be patient with us as we try to explain. <laughs> Straight up. I think that the indigenous experience creates um, a little bit different kind of person. Uh, and let me unpack that. You know, I think about, I'm going to use you as an example. Okay. Andre, I, I think about your career. And having watched you from being like 14 years old and, and on. <laughs> Riddled with anxiety. Yeah, yeah. And acne. Silly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, damn it. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Threes. <laughs> yep, yeah, exactly, exactly. Or rule, rules of four if you're Cree. But anyways, right. yeah, yeah. But that's only if you want to feel complete. Whereas yeah. with, with humor, you've got to feel a little bit of... Yeah. Anyway, whatever. <laughs> um, I look at your career, and on the surface, what you see is... Um, uh, a good-looking, smart, capable kid who's moving up the ranks, doing phenomenal work, getting rave reviews, being inventive and transformative, right? That's the, that's the view mm-hmm. of you. I, I, I hope you're comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but also being Indigenous and probably having some similar experiences, I also know that um, possibly inside, you, there is this feeling of imposter syndrome where it's like, I'm, I'm putting on a play about who I am every day so that it is palatable to a general Canadian audience. I am in some ways hiding and transforming for, um, for, public consumption, my indigeneity. And I'm not sure if people want to hear that because it suddenly sounds like, oh, so you're just pretending, you're just sort of infiltrating this society by acting like you can belong, but not just belong, but, you know, thrive within it and become this voice in it. But you don't have full buy-in because part of you thinks that the whole system is a little bit phony. I don't know. Is that accurate? 
I mean, I would say so. I think that, you know, trying to really not lose. I think for me, actually, like I, I went through uh, theater school. I went through going through the theater for quite some time and I never felt like I fit in. And because of that, there was such a, and I, and I also didn't really have the emotional regulation skills at all. I really didn't learn that growing up. I'm learning it now, um, which I try to joke about, but it is such a, it's such a thing. Like I, the very basic stuff of just like identifying emotions, communicating what they are, and then being able to like manage them in a healthy way. To yeah. me, you know, if someone was like, how do you know what you're feeling? I wouldn't be able to tell them. Right. Um, and and that's you know that's that's a it's a very easy thing to say and it is very hard and you know some people can go their whole lives without working on it but I felt like when I was in um, the system I wasn't resilient enough to really be able to stay in there for a long time and had to kind of take a step back and you know say you know temporary goodbye to Toronto do some things in New York to like keep my um you know uh, foot in the door so to speak. But like it was, it was really difficult, and I remember having a lot of interesting discussions at that time about why I was stepping to stepping back, and how that was, you know, really more for me, less about the the system that was that was kind of um, challenging. Yeah. Well, be, so there's two things here. One is because you have to come to a point where you're like, I can't. Act, uh, I can't. I can't act my identity anymore. I've actually got to be in it. I've got to be me. I've got to find a way to do that, even though I don't know how. But you presented it right. You presented it very, very well. Yeah, yeah. But then there's the other aspect of. But if I do that and things don't work out, if there are any failures or chinks in the armor, then it's not going to be. Oh, you know that's human foible. It's going to be oh. There's, there's the Indian. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So any, any negative attribute that, you, that anyone else can hold and people be like, oh, well, you know, whatever, everyone's human. If you're an indigenous person, there's always this weight on your shoulder. If, if I mess up in some way, then I'm not just messing up like in my life, but there are two things that are happening. I am fulfilling the expectations of society of what an indigenous person is by not succeeding. And um, I am fulfilling my own worst fears that I can't succeed because I am indigenous. Those are some heavy things to carry and and most indigenous people carry them every single day and just don't verbalize them and don't even in many ways identify them because it's so embedded in the way that Canadian society works in relation with indigenous people. Mm-hmm. And it's really uncomfortable too. Yeah. Like for me, I, I find I constantly avoid that kind of stuff. Mm. Constantly. I don't really want to look. I think that's probably why I don't have those skills around like emotional regulation is because it's very uncomfortable. Um, but yeah, it, yeah. Like I said, I didn't start learning that until my mid 30s. So how, you're how, you're way ahead of the game. Oh gosh, <laughs> it feels like I'm kind of kicking a stick down the field. You know that metaphor? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm actually really interested in that because for me, I found that I one day recently was just kind of like, you know what? Like, what if I were to treat myself as if there was something fundamentally missing in terms of how I take care of myself? 
And what if there was this idea of, of what if it was true that I can't go to where I want to go as um, as Hunter and, and his career and, and what he wants to do because I am not sufficient as who I am right now. And there are things that I have to learn. And really taking that seriously and being like, okay, uh, there are some things that I need to improve. There are some skills that I have to learn. Was that something similar to you when you started reflecting? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought, I'm going to lose my edge. I'm going to lose the thing that drives me, the vacuum, the emptiness that keeps pulling me towards some kind of like some version of whatever you would call success. I don't know. Yeah, that vacuum and that emptiness and that lack. I thought if I, if that goes, then who I am goes too. Mm. And then I, one day I just realized like I just have to deal with this. I cannot raise my kids if I don't deal with this, right? Like, sure, they can grow up, they can be fine, but they're going to inherit this, and I don't want them to. So I started this journey, and you know what happened is a lot of garbage started coming out. And the, the closer I got to finding some sort of resolution, the more something in me would start to self-sabotage that. And... I call it I call it uh, what to go spirit, mm. you know, uh, you know, you hear stories about what to go and uh, we to go, however you want to pronounce Wind-to-go, it. Yeah. Windigo, yeah. People might know that, but one of the key components of these legends is the cannibalism of it, and the way I saw it is my spirit cannibalizing itself. Right, it wanted, uh, and. I kind of dealt with this in my book without naming it, but this idea of this constant emptiness and hunger and that it needs misery to feed it or anger or whatever, right? And so the the less I was feeding it, the more ravenous it became until uh, I realized, like, I've got to find a way to live with this and figure it out or else everything's always going to be extremes. And... Um, It's through service. As trite as that may sound, it is through giving my energy out instead of trying to feed myself with my energy. If I could feed others, then that was the that would be the key. And it and the irony of it is it sounds like, oh well, what a weird new age idea. But in reality, that is the like right to the root of traditional indigenous values. It's so interesting how that stuff kind of pops up. Like for me, uh, I remember I was doing um, Hamlet, I think it was two years ago. Wow. Um, or was last summer. I don't know. Words. I don't understand Words. time anymore. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, uh, and I remember I accepted the role and I was like, cool, I'll get to do Hamlet. And then I, you know, and then I, then the realities set in that I was like, okay, now I have to do Hamlet. And, uh, you know, I didn't really see how I would be able to do that role because I just saw this character as a very angry, rage-filled person, very disrespectful to women, his mother, his partner, and I couldn't understand that. And I also couldn't understand um, how petulant this person was being. And then I remember um, a great acting teacher of mine in Toronto 
we were doing the, uh, I swear every time I go back into the theater world I end up doing some sort of unit or study on Chekhov and I'm always this character that is like no one really likes this character but the character's in the scene for like the majority of the time he has like a couple of words he says something it's supposed to be a joke he throws it out into the room no one laughs and then he just sits down and that's it and the scene moves on and I just would always get stuck with these characters and we did the scene we did the the unit and I was just like, I will never understand Chekhov. So a little bit later, the teacher followed up with me, and he was like, there's one thing that I wanted to talk with you about. We didn't get a chance to because we were going too fast, and there was a lot of things that we needed to do. And, um, and then he was just like, this character that you're playing is profoundly abused by the whole community. And what he's clinging for to heal is this love for Latin and this culture and trying to use words to find that community and find out who he is. And I wanted to tell you that, but I didn't get the chance to. And then I finally understood what that character was. So then when I was looking at Hamlet, I was like, okay, well, we have this very masculine, literal penetration of the supernatural of Hamlet, Hamlet Sr. Um, coming in as that ghost, telling Hamlet to do this thing in order to be a man. You have the wise father archetype, right? So then I was like, oh, that's that's an enforced masculinity. And then all of a sudden I was able to be like, oh, that rage I understand because he's disempowered from who he is. He's being told in order to be a man, essentially, you have to do this thing. You have to take revenge. You have to kill. But he can't do that because that's not who he is. And I was like, that's to me what I was learning about with um, the what I was starting to dive into with the indigenous feminisms. So it's interesting how these things can like pop up and then you can start actually using your full self and then all of a sudden it's like a weird thing where you find yourself in service. But like for me it's still it's only happenstance and like how do you get to do that more sustainably and not on accident or by accident? That's heavy, man. Yeah, I know, right? And I, I think about like you know, that's a play that's hundreds of years old. And it's so pertinent. Mm -hmm. It's so pertinent to the story of absent fathers and trauma and being told what your gender role is, what your purpose in life is by a memory. And if that doesn't speak to the indigenous experience, I don't know what does. The yeah. ghosts of, the, of, of mothers and fathers past and of this feeling that I am never going to be good enough. And I'm never yeah. going to be as as valid as my ancestors. Yeah. Yeah, it was intense. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, I think I understand it. Yeah. I, I, yeah. So how many weeks was that? That was like you? two weeks of performances and then like, I don't know, four weeks of rehearsals plus a, a comedy on top of that because we we're doing in rep. But it was an interesting dive into how do you not, how do you like bring it forward who you are and to what you do and not leave it at the door, Yeah, you know? Well, and but you raised another issue about masculinity. As an indigenous person in this society, what does that mean, right? Um, because... In this society, it's a, it's a totally different thing. Sure, um, you know, traditionally, there was a way that men and women, like, really were equal partners in the governance of society and in their roles. And uh, 
and they broke up roles, gender roles, but they also had room for other, you know, like, you know, along that spectrum, right? The LGBTQ that we talk about now was just something that was normal traditionally. And then with the advent of Western culture uh, into, our, into our communities, suddenly that, that normalcy and that allowance for people to be whoever they were within society got superseded by a foreign philosophy where suddenly everything was a sin and everything was wrong and everything that made you human uh, had to be stamped out. So no wonder they tried to destroy indigenous cultures because they are very antithetical to that um, very rigid traditional uh, religious view of what humanity is. So I don't know where to go with that, except to say that um, things are changing. Things are changing, and a lot of people are realizing that, oh, you know what, I can retain all of my beliefs and still allow others to retain theirs, you know. Uh, and the more that happens, the more you see um, extremism rising of folks who just, it feels like a literal threat to their lives to allow others to be different it's fascinating stuff mm-hmm. yeah where do you get your ideas do you think about this stuff alone is it through conversation with people is it through um reading i'm nuts about reading i read maybe way too much really okay because yeah. i i was i'm hearing you talk and i've always like seen this about you is you're able to just like throw an idea up and then just dissect it and articulate it like that so that through reading has that always been a thing Who yeah were, like because it was my way of surviving right so ever since i was like and it comes from my mom you know mm. when we were little kids we didn't have a tv obviously we were we were very poor but we had books okay and my mom had it was her treasure and every night she would read to us she would light candles and read to us all these five kids and she would stand up and act out all the scenes as she was reading them. And I remember her being, uh, like, reading Lord of the, or the Hobbit, The Hobbit to us. And it's like her golem voice, my precious. Like, it was terrifying to me. And uh, it made words on a page, I realized they were living. They were living. And I could be part of that life. And so my life wasn't so great. But I could experience thousands of other lives and thousands of other possibilities. And so I became an avid reader, just could not get enough of of other people's stories, of biographies, of histories, of fantasy and science fiction, everything. Uh, It became my obsession. What? So you mentioned Tolkien. Did you, were you into that world? Like was I a LARPer? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I still have yet to LARP. I think that'd be really exciting. Um, but do people know what LARP is? Live action role playing. For those of you who don't know, that means like dressing up with uh, the costumes and the swords and the shields and pretending to be. Uh, I mean, in that world, I, I'm yeah. big into. Anyway, like so live action video games. So yeah, making your own movies. I love yeah. it. Um, yeah, like. So were you into Lord of the Rings? Like, what, what were some of the, the go-tos? Yeah, I read Lord of the Rings uh, many times. Um, I also read the Bible a lot. Really? Yeah. 
Because we had one, and it had cool pictures. So you know, like, the basis of a lot of, like, Western, uh, like, um, illusions. and Oh, yeah. Cool. And then you see, like, people holding up signs, and I'm like, oh, what does that mean? John 3.16, right? And, and then, so I was like, oh, okay. I read it, and I was like, oh, okay, I got it. And do you know what it is? No. Okay, John 3.16. Um, let's see. Oh, it's now it's escaping me. Of course, right in the moment I, I want to pull I it out, the it's internet. escaping me. Uh, I the reason I raise it because it's the next verse, John three seventeen, that really jazzes me up. Uh, and it is uh, and why I can't remember John three sixteen is bizarre, but John three seventeen is for God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And I always thought that was that's the part that's always missing. It's not about condemnation, <laughs> and it's not about some sort of weird, twisted version of what saving might be. Like, we had to save the village, we had to destroy the village. Uh, that's a famous quote from the 70s, by the way. Really? Yeah. Huh. From the Vietnam War. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I also have, I found it, uh, John 3.16 is, For God yes. so loved the, the world. That he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should have everlasting life and should not perish. Right. That's that's basically that's that's it. I'm very impressed right now. Yeah. So you read you read the Lord of the Rings. You read the Bible, the Bible a lot. I mean, I, I think that that's come up a lot for me. Like people are just like, you should read the Bible. You should be reading, you know, the Quran. You should be reading the Torah. Yeah. So I ended up reading all of that stuff because I was like, well, it's fascinating. I want to know why people function the way they function, because Again, when you grow up indigenous and poor, the rest of the world starts to look kind of like an alien civilization. And you have to be like, how do I, how do I um, navigate through this? And how do I even become a part of this? Mm. Yeah. And uh, so it was really a way to experience a lot of different things that were unlike my life. It was also a key to sort of understanding what my role could be in life. And so reading is... is profoundly powerful my uh i've got an eight-year-old at home and um i was just looking at his spelling list and the you know with his like eight-year-old scrawl spelling these words and i'm i'm just astounded that he even knows what these words are right like what a magic power you know we, t- we joked about hamlet what what is the matter yeah words 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 and it's i'm going to talk about two dot two ideas one is the power of words to create the world. And I do that every day in my job. We, we make bylaws, and that really describes what your experience in the city will be. So by making these words, we make the world you live in, in a very practical sense. And then each layer of government has its own layer of how your world is going to look. So in a very practical sense, your words make your world. But also... On an inner sense, right? Like, so the the narrative and the story that you have for yourself and for your place in society and what society even means de- determines what your life is going to look like and your relationships and your choices. But then there's this other thing. If words are power, and they are, and if words create your world, which they do, then what happens when you have a loss of language? What happens when you have the loss of an entire worldview codified by the sounds you make and the meaning those sounds elicit. So I think about Cree and my father 
didn't learn Cree. I didn't learn Cree. And now we're trying to relearn it so our kids can learn it because it's a language that comes from this land. This is the language that has sprung up from these rivers, these hills, the grasses and trees, the birds, the clouds. It is a language that represents our place right now. And we don't speak it. So we can't unlock the magic of, of where we are. We have in our family this saying, and we don't know where it came from, but when the people forget, the language remembers. For me, I think one of the things that I like returning to the most is like finding out these worldviews and the etymology of Cree words and just being like, oh, my ancestors saw that it was so important that they create this word with this idea from this thing that they observed from the land. I'm right. like, that is sick. That's like I get to shake their hands every time I say that or think about it. Well, so, okay, so here's a good example. In English, we have words like relationship and kinship and belonging, all nice words. But all of that is contained and more in the word Wakotowin, right? One word, Wakotowin, and it means all of that and more. It also means, like, what is our, what is our relationship in the four directions, uh, and the six directions, which is up and down as well, right? So where is our place in the universe in relation to our family, to all life? My goodness, what a word. Do you ever find sometimes when you're handling these beautiful teachings that if you're not in a good place, you shouldn't be doing, you shouldn't be touching those things? in the first place? Yes, of course. Yeah. So I did Sundance for four years. And for those who don't know, uh, Sundance, you go out basically in the middle of nowhere and uh, you build a lodge. It's a big cir- circular structure. It's got the support beams. It's got like the the, the, the roof uh, s- structure that doesn't, doesn't get covered. It just holds everything together. And then you've got um, basically all of your like leaves and branches creating the walls. You've got an inner fence, and the women are on one side, the men on the other, and right in the middle is, is, the, is, the, is the tree, the lodge tree. And it's got um, prints, which are just fabric, colored fabric, um, as flags and also tied around it, and the elders are there, and you've got uh, your escapios, which are the helpers, and, um, and you've got your drummers. And basically, you you dance and whistle with these bone whistles for four days. You fast. You don't have any water. You don't have anything to, to eat. And the whole point is you don't even look around. You look right at that tree. It's a time of meditation, right? And so you're doing all of this, and you're supposed to, the entire time, be in a prayerful place a humble place, and a place open and receptive to teachings and knowledge that you couldn't get any in any other way. Now, if you're not in a good place and you go and try to do that ceremony, um, A, what spirit are you bringing to everyone else? And B, um, all you were doing is going through suffering with, with nothing coming out of it. So basically, 
it goes way right back to what we first started talking about, the difference between um, trauma and struggle. So if, if you are just suffering, you're not eating, you're not drinking, you are just literally starving yourself and you're not in a receptive place for four days, basically you're just causing harm to yourself. But if you are in that good place, that experience transforms from being harmful to being something that, that gives you new knowledge. And so it's not, to me, it's not that like there's some like, you know, big baddie spirit. It's like, oh, ho, ho, they're not a good place. Now we're really going to mess them up. It's more along the lines of um, this is something we hold sacred. Are you ready to experience that? And if not, then you're just going through the motions. And if you're just going through the motions, then you're stripping your life of meaning. Hmm. Nice. That really hit me like a sack of hammers. That was, yeah, okay. I feel like I could talk to you forever, but I know that you have places to go and laws to make and, and communities <laughs> to build. But, you know, my, my last question is how has the community and the definition of the community changed for you from going into the arts, going into leadership to today? Mm. Has it changed? It's just gotten bigger. It's gotten bigger. When I was a, a six-year-old boy, I remember watching my mom when she thought all of us were sleeping, crying as she was going over um, the bills, right? And I, I rarely slept. I, did, was not, I, was, I was never a good sleeper because I would stay at night full of anxiety, wondering how could I help my mom? Why did we never have any money? What was wrong? And as I got older and had more interactions, I saw it wasn't just our family. So then I would lie awake at night wondering, how do I help everyone? And I never had a satisfactory answer because when you're a kid, you just don't know what is possible. And every stage of my life, that concern of how do we make things better has only grown. And who I care about has grown. So it went from just my family to my friends and neighbors to my entire community to the city to a nation to a people and then suddenly to all living things. And not just what we uh, in Western science call living things, but all minerals, all, all gases, all air, like all things that are interrelated and connected. What is our responsibility to that? And so that's where I am now. So as silly as it is, if we're talking about something like, oh, you know, it'd be great to... Um, you know, the, the debate right now is, are we going to reduce parking in Edmonton? Are we going to reduce the, the, the requirement for, for places to provide tons of parking? Well, it sounds like such a silly uh, kind of discussion. You know, maybe you do, maybe you don't, whatever. But then you have to ask yourself, okay, so let's say we reduce parking because we want people to be more active and take more transit or 
we need uh, more space for, for parks and, and for actual living. Okay, sure. But if you take away the pe- people's ability to move around, then are you giving them a better option? So is our transit system up to snuff? Can, can people actually get from point A to point B in a way that's reasonable? Can a mom, the single mom, take her kids on transit to daycare, go to work, go to meetings throughout town, come back home, pick up groceries, pick up the kids, and go home? That, if you're on transit, that's really tough. If you're in a car, it's a lot easier. So if we're going to take away the ability for people to drive to places, are we offering them a better alternative? Are we providing this great transit? If not, why? Where are our priorities? And as you can see, the questions become bigger and bigger and more interrelated until you say, I have a responsibility, and this goes right back to where we began, to use all of these resources, financial, human, uh, and, and conceptual, yeah. to create a better life and a better reality. Thanks so much to Hunter and Jacqueline Cardinal for bringing us that wonderful conversation. And thanks to Aaron Paquette for sharing his time with us. If you want to find out more about Aaron, check out his website at aaronpaquette.net. You can check out our show notes for that link. And our show notes will also have a link to more info about Hunter and Jacqueline too. Well, listeners, that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks so much for listening. It means a lot to us. We know many of you have been spreading the word about the show, which is great. And for the rest of you, uh, it would be really great if you could share uh, this show with your friends. Or you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews help new listeners find us. They also make our hearts happy. We're on Facebook too, so you can share your thoughts and check out pictures there. Thanks again for being such awesome, amazing listeners. We've been your hosts, Elizabeth Bonkink and Andrew Paul. Until Until next next time. time. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation and is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. The show is edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at the ECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well Endowed.